today we hit the, um, the center of the seven churches. We hit church number four, the church at Thyatira. If you've been, uh, if you're new here today, we have been in a study of the churches of Revelation, which is the very last book of your Bible. So if you've got a Bible with you or you're using it on your phone, go ahead and find Revelation chapter two. And we're going to be in the, um, I'll find it here myself as we get going. Revelation chapter two, the church to Thyatira. It's the very last uh, paragraph of Revelation chapter 2. Uh, each week as we've seen these churches, the cities that they've been written to, I've given you kind of jokes along the way of your ancient knowledge of, of Turkey, uh, what was Asia Minor at the time, but each of these cities that we've been writing to have gotten greater in prominence in John's day. Uh, we ended last week with the city of Pergamum, which is a very popular kind of the center seat of the Roman Empire in terms of uh, God worship or worshiping the emperor of the day. Well, we, we changed directions here, and we hit this city called Thyatira. Thyatira was a city that uh, was kind of, it was destroyed and rebuilt multiple times because it was kind of a speed bump on the way to Pergamum. Pergamum was where, what we looked at last week, the prominent center of the Roman Empire, and when people came to try to attack Pergamum, they'd have to go through Thyatira. So, so Thyatira would have... Uh, a small contingent of soldiers whose purpose really was just to slow down the invading army to allow Pergamum to get ready for those who were uh, the attackers. So Thyatira is a, is a relatively unknown. It's probably the most obscure of the cities that we're going to look at thus far. But it had a church there, uh, the church at Thyatira, and that's the letter that, Jesus, that John will write, uh, that Jesus commissions John to write to the church. Uh, it's the longest letter of the seven. And I think uh, up to this point, we've seen some very uh, extreme things in terms of what the church has dealt with, in terms of suffering, uh, doctrinal fidelity, and strength. This church is a letter, or this letter is to a church that's relatively uh, obscure in a city where uh, Jesus is going to spend a lot of time, the longest of his seven letters, speaking to the issues that are happening in this church. So last week, we began uh, looking at Pergamum that had a few people in it who held to the teaching of Balaam. And if you were with us last week, you probably asked, well, Steve, what's a Balaam? And we spent time looking at who Balaam was as a false prophet in the Old Testament. This week, we're going to look at another Old Testament character, a woman named Jezebel. If you are pregnant with a little girl, I would recommend not naming her Jezebel. FYI, she is not a popular individual. You go through the Old Testament, you have these, these women of great renown and great faith and great courage. You have the, uh, the Hannahs and the Abigails uh, and the Ruths uh, in the scriptures. And then you have uh, women who are named Delilah, or um, if you know the story of Athaliah, who was one of the, the only queens uh, in the Old Testament during the kingly period. And then you have this woman, Jezebel. Well, we're going to look at Jezebel and who she is and why she's called that here in this letter. Thyatira was somewhat of a blue-collar city. It had a lot of what were called trade guilds. Uh, trade guilds are essentially, there's lots uh, that, was, that kind of we discovered about Thyatira that came from, um, like I said, trade guilds who would be like coppersmiths or metal workers or uh, people who would work linens and textiles, and it was a very um, busy city where that was concerned. The only other place that Thyatira is mentioned in the Bible is by a woman in Acts 16, a lady named Lydia. Lydia was a seller of purple goods. She was into the, the textiles world. Well, Thyatira in this time 
Um, the pressure last week was really political, that you had a center city in the life of the Roman Empire who had the, what was called the, um, the ability to execute those who did not follow the political and religious system of the day. Well, the pressure that's going to come on the church at Thyatira is going to be more economic. Uh, it's going to be more social. If you've ever been in a situation when the, in um, the job that you work or the career that you have where your ethics and your Christian convictions have caused you to make decisions and to take a stand, then you know the pressure that the Christians were under at Thyatira. As they would interact, if you were a linen worker or a textile worker or a metalsmith or a blacksmith of some kind, you would have these patron deities. You would have the deity, the false god of the metal workers, the false excuse me, the false god of the textile workers, and involved in being in those guilds so that you would have work to do and participate in the social and economic system of the day, you would have to go and be a part of these feasts to these false deities. So there's an economic kind of pressure that's coming on the Christians who are in Thyatira. And they, if last week was this, this idea of cravings that lead us to compromise, where you saw a church at Pergamum who had a few, just a few, that held to the teaching of Balaam. Well, this week in the church of Thyatira, you have now cancer, and it's malignant. It's moving its way through the church, and the church is trying to figure out how they cannot blur the line between truly following Jesus and truly following uh, and taking a stand for Christ when there's economic and social pressure. Does that sound familiar? Have there ever been times in the life of the church where we've had to go... Uh, I can't make that deal. I can't do what you're asking me to do because I have convictions about who Jesus is and who he calls me to be. And if I lose the deal and I lose the promotion uh, because of my convictions about following Jesus Christ, that's fine. But those pressures are real pressures today and they were real pressures during the time of this letter to the church at Thyatira, all right? So let's take a look at it. Let's jump in here to the church at Thyatira. Let me pray, and we'll jump in here together in Revelation chapter 2. Father in heaven, thanks for your word. Thanks for the truth of God that allows us to understand and to see ourselves rightly, to see you rightly, to see the Son of God and who he is and how he has given his life for our sins. Father, as we come to this text today about a church that is being too tolerant in his day, we pray that we would have courage in our day to be Christians that hold to the truth of God in our culture that would cause us to be faithful to you and to your word. Father, I know people who walk in the back doors of our church here this morning may be experiencing that kind of pressure in their workplace. They may be experiencing that kind of pressure in their career. So, Father in heaven, I pray that this text would encourage those who walk in here this morning, that this text would give us strength and courage and the steel in our spine to be able to take a stand for you. Father, convict of sin this morning. Reveal the ways in which we are called to repent, and may our lives come more in conformity with the truth of your word and your desires for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. And for his sake, amen. All right, Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Y'all there? Move your head in a direction because I can't see how much smiling you're doing at me. I assume it's a lot. I presume you love to see me. All right, Revelation 2. That was a joke. You can laugh. 
Revelation 2, verse 18. Let's see what, what John says here. And to the angel of the church at Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God. Now, that phrase, the Son of God, is going to be an important one as we get to the end of this letter. But the hint of what John is teaching to the church at Thyatira is to begin with the truth of the Son of God. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, has God the Father speak from heaven a few different times. And at least two of the times, the first one is at his baptism. Jesus goes down and up out of the water. A, a, uh, the spirit, like a dove, rests upon him. And a voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. There's a recognition of God to Jesus about his identity. When Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, Elijah and Moses appear. And a cloud descends, and the disciples are standing there, Peter, James, and John. And a voice from heaven says, this is my son. Listen to him. When Jesus now enters into his ministry in the, in the majority of John's gospel, this becomes the key reason that the, that the Jews decide that crucifixion is Jesus' fate. That they say he was calling himself God's son, making him equal with God the Father. When they move to their testimony before Pilate. They say, we have a law that he ought to die because he made himself to be the son of God. So right at the beginning of this letter, you have two realities that Jesus has experienced while he has been on earth. He's experienced affirmation from heaven itself that declares who he is and his identity. And he's experienced persecution for his identity and his welcome and right relationship with God the Father, okay? Now, are those important things for you and I to know as Christians as we navigate our economic and social realities? That we have to navigate the reality of being sons and daughters of God. And we have to experience the reality of people not being fans of us because of how we believe that we are made right in our relationship with God. Jesus experienced that. Jesus knows what that is like. Now, that's going to become very clear toward the end of our time together. But remember, this is who God says Jesus is. He's the Son of God. He affirms. He has the co-equality with God the Father. He has the right relationship with God the Father. He has the applause of heaven, as it were. The Son of God. Now, there's two things about Jesus that are written here that describe who he is and what he's like. Do you see what they are? The first one is he has eyes of fire. To the church at Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. Well, what does that mean? Commentators are pretty uh, united in the fact that this probably has to do with Jesus' insight. Would you agree that Jesus uh, has a good perspective on life, on humans, on the earth? That Jesus is not confused when Jesus looks at people and looks at situations, he has absolute certainty and clarity in his opinion. Nothing is hidden from Jesus. God sees all, knows all, understands all, that Jesus has a right perspective when he looks at situations in your life. Isn't that important? Isn't it great to know that we have a God in heaven who absolutely sees things perfectly clearly in the situations that cause us lots of consternation? Situations that, that for us are foggy, that we can't quite understand what is going on. Well, Jesus says, I have eyes of the flame of fire. Not only that, I have feet 
and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, I did a little study because I was interested. How many times are Jesus' feet mentioned in Scripture? And when they're mentioned, why is it important? Isn't that an interesting study? This is insight into what pastors think about. What about Jesus' feet? Huh. You know, through the course of the Gospels, Jesus' feet are referred to in essentially one of two ways. This is fascinating stuff. I I know. I know. Pay attention. This is so good. Write this down. You can share this with your family later. Jesus' feet are referred to in situations where people worship and adore him. You think about the woman who breaks the perfume over his feet that she comes and she weeps and washes his feet with her hair and anoints them. There's issues of adoration and subjection that people fall down in front of Jesus and lay hold of his feet, being totally unable to to handle the situations in their life. So there's worship and there's subjection. There's one other place that Jesus' feet are mentioned, and it's mentioned when God quotes Psalm 110, and it talks about God making Jesus' enemies his footstool. So worship, subjection, and strength all refer to Jesus' feet. And here, I think the issue is strength. When Jesus has feet like burnished bronze, the the picture that we said before in Revelation chapter 1 is that his life is to be modeled and emulated. He's got total stability and strength. Now, is that good for us to know with Jesus? That Jesus has complete insight, total clarity, he's never confused, and he has absolute stability and security and strength in the ways that he walks. Now, that is going to be very important for the problem that this church faces. This church is about to have a commendation and then a critique, and it's a big, long critique because it's got some issues that it needs to deal with. And that truth about Jesus, that he has certainty, clarity, stability, strength, and he is acknowledged by heaven as the Son of God is important for how this church is going to navigate the struggles in their midst. Okay, let's look at the commendation. Look at verse 19. I know your works. Now, when you hear, I know your works, and if you've been with us through the course of this series, you remember that Jesus has said that to another church before. He said it back to Ephesus. Thyatira is like a mirror image of Ephesus. Where Ephesus was strong, Thyatira is weak. Thyatira has something that Ephesus did not. Remember Ephesus' problem, what they didn't have? That the Ephesus didn't have, they, they had great doctrinal fidelity. They had great doctrinal strength that they tested and evaluated false apostles that tried to work their way into the church. And they tested them and said they are not apostles and they're out of the church. But they lost their first love. Now, watch what Thyatira has. I know your works. Your what? Your love. This is only the second mention of love in the the book of Revelation. That's why commentators feel it's this, it's, it's what happens Uh, if Ephesus looks in the mirror. They've got opposite problems. I know your love. Not only that, I know your faith and your service and your patient endurance. That's that word where this church is, is holding up under pressure and difficulty and suffering in its day. There may be a sense here that you have a motivation that begins with love and faith and the outcome that turns into service and patient endurance, that I can suffer well and I can serve well. 
if the love in my life and the faith in my life is centered on the truth and work of Jesus Christ. Not only that, your latter works exceed the first. Remember what we said about Ephesus? Repent and do the works that you did at the start. So Jesus looks at this church and he says, you've got faith, you've got love, you've got service, you've got patient endurance and suffering, and not only that, you're growing. Let me just take a minute. I hope for me, this is my hope for me, that I'm where I am in life. I hope my next 30 years that my latter works exceed my former. I hope that as I journey with Jesus and I get to my 50s and my 60s and my 70s, that I become more convinced of his word. I become more joyful in the way I express the truth of who he is. That my ambition personally as a man and a husband and a father is that I would grow. That's my hope for you in our church, is that however long God has you here, whether it's three months or 30 years, that your latter works would exceed your former. That you would never be at a spot in your life where you go, those were the good old days. But now I'm dry. Those are the good old days, but now I'm kind of like this sanctified cynic. I don't want that for me, and I don't want that for you. And when Jesus begins the reality of looking at this church, he said, You've got some really good things, and you're growing. You're developing that the faith and love and service and patient endurance, now those get tested at all sorts of times in our lives, but this church is growing, that you're watching this church broaden and excel and move into greater opportunities of ministry and opportunity for Jesus' sake and in Jesus' name. That's what I want for me. Don't you want that for you? I want that for you here. That your times and your seasons in our church would be ones where you get to grow. You take your next step with Jesus and you would, God, I don't know how you're going to answer this prayer, but I'm going to move. I'm going to serve. I'm going to get in the game. And God, I want to see you do beyond what we could ask or imagine. Wouldn't that be fun? For our latter works to exceed our former. Well, that's where this church is. So you've got this great, beautiful commendation. Now, you've got a problem. Let's look at the problem. Verse 20. But... I have this against you, that you tolerate. This message is a fun one because Jesus is going after a tolerant church. What do you think about that? What kind of opinion does Jesus have of a church that is tolerant? Now, that's a pretty loaded term in our city and culture, isn't it? Pretty loaded term in our nation at this time. Well, what does Jesus think about tolerant churches? Tolerate is a word uh, that is translated a lot of different ways throughout the New Testament. Sometimes it means to permit or to allow. It's even translated in other situations, forgive. It's translated by Jesus in the Gospels as divorce. Essentially, the word means, uh, I wish I had something in my hand that I could use for illustration, but it means to open your hand. It means to be open-handed and to release and to allow some certain things in your church that you should not be allowing. That there are certain stances, certain truths, certain ideas, certain doctrines that are in the church that you are too open-handed about. Now, we said before that the testing and the teaching of Balaam appealed to the cravings, right, the desires that we all had, and that's why Balaam's teaching was so effective in the life of the Israelites. Well, 
Now we have another Old Testament character, the Old Testament character Jezebel. So you're tolerating that woman, Jezebel, probably not her real name. I hope it's not a real name. Probably not her real name. But Jezebel is an interesting Old Testament figure. I'm not going to, we had to go through like eight chapters of the book of Numbers last time. I'm not going to do that to you this time. I'm just going to give you two little verses that refer to Jezebel. Jezebel was a queen of the Sidonians. And she marries a guy named Ahab. Ahab is one of the kings of the northern part of Israel during the time when the kingdom was divided. There were 10 tribes in the north and two in the south that stayed with David and 10 in the north that followed after a guy named Jeroboam. Not important. You can read it later in 1 Kings if you want. Great summer, fall reading for you to get into. Ahab married this lady named Jezebel. Now, here's what it says. You don't need to turn there. This is from 1 Kings. I've got it on the screen here just for you. Here's what it says about Ahab and Jezebel. 1 Kings chapter 16. And Ahab The son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord. In the course of the history of Israel's kings, there's no good king in the north. There's no good king in the sequence of kings that are in the northern kingdom. And Ahab, just like that, is one of them. He was the son of Omri. He did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Well, who's that guy? That guy's the first king of the north. The first king of the north, after the kingdom splits under Solomon, what he does is he sets up two false idols, two golden calves to set up the worship because he's nervous that every faithful Jew in the north is going to rush to the south and his kingdom is going to be lost. So what he does is he creates two false idols, two golden calves to allow people to make sure that their worship is okay. God, not a big fan of idolatry, generally speaking, and this characterizes the entire sequence of kings in the north. So no bueno for Ahab. Okay? He walked in the same kind of idolatry in all the kings that were before him, all the way back to the first one, the king Jeroboam. Now watch this. And if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Now imagine, you're a king in Israel. And God says, you did some bad stuff. You led my people into idolatry. And then you married her. I think that's hilarious. You thought idolatry was bad. Later on in 1 Kings, it it says this of Ahab. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. Jezebel is not a Jew, She's a, uh, a Sidonian, as I said, and what she does is she marries into the leadership of the nation and then begins to influence the nation away from true fidelity, true worship, true submission to the God, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. What do you think God thinks of Jezebel? The moments that Jezebel gets in the scriptures are when she kills hundreds of prophets, when she rigs a jury against a guy to get his land named Naboth. 
She doesn't end well. She ends her life being thrown out of a window and eaten by dogs. Welcome to Citadel Square. These are the things we talk about. And Jesus says to the church, you tolerate this woman. Well, what kind of, what's her ministry? What's happening in the church that God, would, Jesus would refer to this woman as Jezebel? You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. This isn't a teaching that, is, that a few hold in the church. This is a teaching at the highest levels of the church. This is a competition at the level of the pulpit in a church to where there are conflicting truths being posited about who God is, what he is like. Prophecy, when you get to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul talks about this. He says, when, Pete, when prophets stand up and speak, two or three should evaluate and listen to what is said to make sure it's in line with the true teaching and the true truth of God. This woman calls herself a prophetess, which means she is claiming direct divine authority to speak on behalf of God. You know what happens to false prophets in the Old Testament? They stone them. When they say, thus saith the Lord, and it doesn't come true, they go, well, you're done. You get one chance to be 100% right. You got to bat 1,000 as an Old Testament prophet. This Jezebel teaches in such a way that she believes she is giving true revelation from God to people. What's she do? She calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. Now, seduction, and in the context, the children that will come from her, seduction in the, in the book of Revelation is never translated this way ever again. Every single time seduction, that word is translated in the book of Revelation, it's always translated deceive, deception, or deceived. It references Satan, it references the false prophet, it references the city of Babylon that is opposed to God in all of its political power and strength. See, this woman is teaching and modeling and communicating in such a way that her ministry is fundamentally deceptive in Jesus' eyes. How does he know that? He's got the eyes like the flame of fire. That helps, doesn't it? To be able to accurately call out those who are, whose teaching is considered a threat to the people of God. This is the only spot in the book of Revelation where uh, the servants of God are deceived. How, how serious do you think God takes the teaching in the church that it would seduce and deceive his servants. Those who have faith and love and service and patient endurance in the kingdom. Do you think Jesus cares about that? Do you think that matters? Let me ask you, with your kids, how serious would you take somebody trying to deceive your children? Dads, what do you think? How serious would you take somebody trying to deceive your daughter or deceive your son? I tell you how I feel about that. I got five daughters. That's serious business. And when Jesus says she is teaching and seducing my servants, Jesus takes that personally. See it? My servants, not people in the church, my kids. She's teaching and seducing my servants to, to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, we've said this before all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Immorality, sexual immorality, is often connected to false idol worship, right? So here's the problem, again, in the city of Thyatira, is that we have these economic and social 
encounters, these economic and social opportunities for people. They're like labor unions that say, well, we all worship Apollos, who's the god of XYZ and textiles and metalsmithing and all those things. And when we do to make sure we get his blessing on our career, we've got to do XYZ and ABC. We've got to be immoral. We've got to eat the food. We've got to make sure we're doing all the right things to make sure that we get the best deals and we move ahead in our career. Does that sound familiar? Are there opportunities for you to move out of Christian convictions and ethics and to get ahead in your career to make sure that you get deals, more money, security in your life, greater opportunity for advancement, all if you compromise your character and your convictions? Here's the problem. That this prophetess in the church is blurring the line between economic, social, spiritual purity. Now the people in the church are saying, well, you can't get ahead. You can bring your Christianity at home. You can bring it to church, but it certainly don't work at, at work. That's between you and God, but we do things different here in the workplace. That word seduce is another good one too. You know the seduce word? It's the same word in the Greek that we get the term planet. You know what a planet does? It literally means to wander. And this is what this woman is doing, causing the people of God, the servants of God, to wander away from the truth. And the church, you open your hands to it. You're okay with it. You let it happen. There's nobody in the church who's taking a stand and saying this is right and this is wrong. This is true, this is false. Is that a problem in a church? You know what happens next week? The church has a reputation of being alive, and Jesus says, you're dead. Because you don't hold to the truth. See, tolerance in the church is not an issue of personality. It's not an issue of preference. Jesus thinks tolerance is an issue of truth that the church should be intolerant about things that are not true. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to what? To repent. This, there's probably a sense here in this church that this woman who's had this kind of effect in the church has been confronted once, twice, three times, kind of according to a Matthew 18 model. But she hasn't turned. She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. What is, you know what repentance means? Literally the word is metanoia, metamorphosis. It's the prefix in the Greek that means to change. Noia is the word that means mind, it means to change your mind. What do you do when you repent? You acknowledge that your perspective is not God's perspective and you change your mind. You agree. This is why truth is so essential to repentance. If you don't have truth, you can't define sin. You can't define righteousness. Therefore, you can't repent of anything. If you don't have a standard to call you, call you back to, there's no way for you to repent of anything. Therefore, nobody needs to repent because now truth is subjective. Unless truth is objective, you have no way to determine what is true, what is false, what is right, what is wrong, what is holy, what is unholy. You with me? If you have truth, now you have a standard. And Jesus says, there's a standard for Jezebel. And Jezebel, I came and I talked to you and I showed you what the standard was. And you won't turn. You won't repent. 
you won't align and agree with the truth that I am speaking to you. That's why this process in Matthew 18 is so important for church discipline. I share this with every single new member's uh, group we have. If there is sin in our lives and you see somebody committing sin, you have an opportunity and obligation in our church to be able to bring that sin to the light of the individual and to call them to account, to repent, to change. You know what's so great about this passage too? Is uh, Jesus sees things absolutely clearly. And he acknowledges both the good, faith, love, service, patient endurance, and that they have a problem being too open-handed over here. Let's get this one right. I can see all the good stuff you're doing, but there's something over here that's a danger, church. There's something over here that's a threat to you, church. Let's handle this thing over here. I, I could tell you stories of people in this church who have been in other churches who still wear the wounds of churches who wouldn't deal with sin in their midst and show up in our church with regret and pain and wounds and hard areas in their life because nobody would speak the truth about sin. Jesus said, I gave her time. Isn't that the grace of God? How fast do you think you ought to get this lady out of your church? And Jesus says, I gave her time. Jesus can deal with our wavering doctrine, and the way he deals with it is by the community acknowledging, repenting, and growing together. Isn't that great? What a great reality for a church. What a blessing for a church to take sin seriously. I gave her time. She refuses to repent. Now, this is Jesus doing something. Uh, remember we mentioned Korah last week where the earth swallowed him up and everybody went, whoa. Remember we mentioned Ananias and Sapphira last week from Acts chapter 5 where they lied to the Holy Spirit and to the church and they died. Here's Jesus taking control of a church. Here's Jesus himself showing up at the church and purifying the church. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they, what? Say it. They repent. What's the opportunity? What's the command? Repent. Change the way you're going. Change the, the convictions you have where you can blur the lines between church and culture. Come back to the truth about God. Come back to the truth about sin and righteousness and the purity of the gospel message. I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. It's a little serious, isn't it, Jesus? Not to Jesus. Jesus takes this super serious. Jezebel will be thrown on a bed of sickness. This seems to be an act of God that the whole church recognizes, and not only the church at Thyatira, but all the churches, as you'll see in a second, that she gets thrown on a sickbed, that the people who are flirting with her false teaching, who are committing adultery with her, which is unfaithfulness when it comes to biblical doctrine and truth, they have opportunity to repent. And the third group are the people who are our children. Paul tells Timothy, he's my true child in the faith. These are the people who are sold out to her teaching already. They die, she gets thrown on a bed of sickness, she goes through a period of tribulation, and others get to watch that this is a judgment of God in the church. Look at what the remainder of the verse says. And all the churches will know 
Jesus takes this personally because he's teaching a lesson about who he is. He takes it personally because of how this woman is affecting his servants. This judgment from Jesus, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. That's almost an identical rephrasing of what happens in Revelation chapter 19 when the books are open and men are judged according to the things that they have done. Jesus takes the purity of his church around the truth that he has given incredibly seriously. It's not an issue of personality, not an issue of preference, not an issue of whatever else you think it is. For Jesus, it's an issue of what is true and who is deceived. Verse 24, but to the rest. Isn't it great that you have a Jesus who goes to war with falsehood? This is a sobering text. Let's not get me wrong. But you have a Jesus in heaven. Now, isn't, aren't issues of confronting sin always difficult for us? Anybody want to go confront somebody over sin today and go, hey, let me help you with an area that I see you struggling in. Does that sound exciting to you? You want to spend your lunch doing that? No, that sounds hard. Do you see what Jesus promised to the church? He promised to be the church's defender, and he promised something that he's already mentioned about himself, that you and I need in the context of confronting sin in one another. For our church to be faithful, sooner or later, you're going to have to speak up and be concerned about somebody else's spiritual life. You can't just come to church and go, it's me and Jesus and all these other people who would, or whatever, but me and Jesus today. Jesus takes false teaching, truth, error seriously in his church and expects that the church cares about the spiritual well-being of one another. Read 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, this is how you ought to treat this individual in the church who has his father's wife. You ought to take it seriously, church, and you're not. You're allowing it. See, the thing that's hard for us in those conversations, when you have to have those conversations, is that you need what Jesus has. Jesus has total insight and total strength and stability. Isn't that good? You know when you read Matthew 18, which is the passage on uh, church discipline, you go, if your brother sins against you, what do you do? You go to your brother, show them their fault between the two of you, and if he repents, you have won your brother. We have a repentant individual in the life of the church. If he doesn't repent, take two or three others, bring them along, have the conversation so that the matter may be established by the voices of two or three witnesses. And if he repents, you have won your brother. Yes, repentance has happened. If he refuses, tell it to the church so that the church now is aware that this individual is leaving the flock, he's leaving the fold, he's walking dangerously. There's a problem in his life. He's believing error. He's moving away from the truth and the safety and security of God's word. If he doesn't listen to the church, you treat him as a Gentile or just tax collector. Then the remainder of that passage goes on to be a verse that a lot of times we quote in the context of prayer. Where two or three are gathered, there I am among them, right? That passage has to do with Jesus agreeing with the standard of truth being applied to one another. 
So that in little bitty places, listen, Thyatira is a little bitty place, a little unknown church where they are trying to take seriously the truth of God. You are going to have opportunities when you parent, when you're with your spouse, when you're in relationship with people at work, uh, when you're in your community groups where there's going to be a place and a time for you to go, bro, you're in sin. That's just, it's going to wreck you. And we've got to care enough about the truth and about the danger that sin poses to one another to have those conversations. To go, you're out. You're out of bounds. Come on back. And what Jesus, what Jesus says also in Matthew 18 is what you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Which means that heaven is watching how you take the truth seriously in your church. And when you take the truth seriously and you say, this individual is out of bounds and God's word said this and you are out of bounds, you desire the wrong things, you need to repent and come back into the truth of God. And Jesus says, I'm there with you to do that work. Isn't that what we need? Strength and stability and wisdom and insight to be able to have those conversations. That's the promise that Jesus gives to this church. The problem is is the church is too tolerant. They won't come back to the truth of God. They won't look to the truth to determine what is right, what is wrong. To the rest of you who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, let me say this, the deep things of Satan is probably one of the attractive, um, one of the reasons that Jezebel's teaching is attractive. Everybody wants to grow and be wise, don't we? Everybody wants to grow and have deep theological insights. I'll talk for myself. I'd rather grow and have deep theological insights than repent. Wouldn't you? I'd rather grow in maturity and grace and all these great things. But repent, man, that takes work. That takes apology. That takes sensitivity to the spirit. That, say, that takes saying, I am wrong and God is right. It's way better for me to have deep things that I know than to have the simple babbling brook of restoration of fellowship with God because I repent and take my sin seriously who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. That's a great verse to memorize for your sanctification journey with Jesus. Hold fast. Go to the end. Hold fast to what? The truth. Hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to the things that you've already attained, the faith, the love, the service, the patient endurance. Hold fast, keep going, persevere. Verse 26, this would blow, this verse, if you haven't been listening, boy, tune in right now. This verse would blow the minds of the people in this church. This is about to blow your mind. I'm not hyping this up. This is amazing, the promise to those who conquer who take the truth of God seriously, who apply it in the context of relationships in their church and hold fast to being faithful to Jesus Christ. What's the promise? It's right here, verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give, watch this. Some of you, do you have a Bible where the text changes right there? Where it's a, who who has that? If you have it, raise your hand. You have that? That's good, you can keep your Bible. The rest of you throw your Bibles away, get a good Bible. What John is doing is quoting directly from a psalm. Do you have a cross-reference that tells you what the psalm is? Psalm what? Number two? 
Psalm number two, there you go. I got one guy in the back who gives me the two, deuces. It's two. It's from Psalm chapter two. Here's the promise of those who hold, hold, the, you know, who hold the truth of Jesus Christ rightly. I'm going to hold fast to the truth of God. I'm going to define sin the way God defines it. I'm not going to compromise with the culture. I'm going to hold fast to what God has delivered to us, the church. And Jesus says, I promise that I will give authority over the nations. Aren't these conversations a lot of times personal and private when we deal with sin among one another? The vast majority of of church discipline or ways in which we push on each other to help one another walk toward godliness, a lot of those things are private. What happens at the end of this letter to the church at Thyatira is that the promises become not just public, they become not just national, they become global. What do you mean, Steve? I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. That is a direct quote from Psalm 2. You know what Psalm 2 is about? Psalm 2 is about Jesus versus the world. Where the nations want to throw off the fetters of God. They want to throw off the truth of God. And it says, God in heaven laughs. And it says in Psalm 2, of God the Father to God the Son, I have installed my king on Mount Zion. He is, this is why it starts with the Son of God in Revelation 2.18. Because the fulfillment of the promises of God the Father to God the Son is that God the Son will rule the world. What are we doing in the church? We are little bitty forts Little bitty bastions of truth where the kingdom of God matters, where we hold to the truth of the God of heaven and earth and we apply it relationally and ethically and morally and economically in our discipleship relations, our parenting, the way we submit to authority, the way we lead, the way we speak the truth in love, the way we do all of those things. We're little bitty examples where God's truth and God's rule comes to be a reality. And Jesus says, there's coming a day when I will rule the world visibly. This is probably in Revelation chapter 20, during the millennial kingdom. Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew chapter 19 that when he comes back, they will rule on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. Paul says that we will judge angels. What Jesus promises to the church that now, in a city and in a time that experiences economic and social pressure, that that church, if they hold fast to the truth of God, that there's coming a day when Jesus rules visibly over the whole earth and we are joint heirs, we are joint rulers with Jesus himself. <laughs> Did you think about that, waking up in the morning, that one day I'm going to rule with the world with Jesus? No. Because we're all focused down here and Jesus says you hold fast to the truth and there's one day coming where you will be visibly vindicated for you being aligned with the truth of the God of heaven and earth. And I will share my global authority with you. Are you kidding me? Verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. Commentators have about seven different interpretations for that some of which that came from Balaam's prophecy. Remember that, Balaam? 
It may be here. Jesus is referred to as the morning star in Revelation chapter 19. I think it's probably best to say this was a symbol in the Roman um, legion of Rome's absolute invincibility. They would have the, the symbol of Venus, which is considered the morning star, on their shields that would prove their invincibility over any and all foes. And what Jesus says, just like he did last week, remember how Jesus had the sword last week? Well, the sword at Rome was the right to execute all those who opposed the rule of Rome. Here, Jesus takes, I think, a similar Roman example, and he says, what you think can be accomplished by political, social, and economic pressure of the day find their fulfillment only in me. So church, if you hold fast to the truth of God, if you take the word of God seriously, I will grant you the authority, the rule, the reign, and the realm of my power and my invincibility. That's why I think we go back to God, or to Jesus, who has the feet like burnished bronze. He has total authority over everything and everywhere. This is not just a church issue, this is a world issue. Now, I want to close with one thing. Oh, verse 29. I should close with the last verse. What do you think about that? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What do you take away from this? What are the lessons that are springing up in your own heart even now? where you, maybe you recognize that there's compromise in your life, where you're blurring the line in some areas, sexually, relationally, economically. And the invitation to you and to me is to repent, is to come back to the God who has total insight, total authority, total stability, and total strength. I want to read 1 John chapter 1. You can turn there with me. Just turn back three or four pages You'll hit Jude, which is a one-page book, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John. 1 John 1 is uh, one of John's epistles. And what he does is he gives the standards for fellowship in the church. If you become a member of Citadel Square, one of the first things we ask you to do is to share your testimony about how you have repented of all of the works of your hands and have run to the faith or to the grace of and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation or the one who bore the wrath of God away for me and for you. I want to hear that story. Our pastors want to hear that story, how you have renounced the ways in which you could please God and say, I cling to Jesus Christ alone. That reality is what forms the truth of 1 John chapter 1. It's the standard for fellowship in the church. See, the standard for fellowship in the church isn't that we all do CrossFit or that we're all vegans or not or that some smoke and some don't. And a lot of times the church gets wrong these issues of preferences and desire rather than truth. You have truth, convictions, opinions, preferences and desires, right? That's kind of your continuum of things that you hold dear to you. The church's fellowship is not based on convictions, opinions, preferences and desires. The church's relationships, the church being bound to one another is based upon, you guessed it, truth. 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, with that which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, that life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, 
which is with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. As indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his what? With his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now watch this. Watch how the truth penetrates a church and creates fellowship. This is the message we have heard from him. Who's him in context? It's from God. And we proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. What's the message of the truth of the Bible? God is absolutely holy, perfect, without error in everything that he says and does. He's absolutely perfect in righteousness. No man, the Bible says, can see God and live. He's that white, hot, blinding, hot, holy. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Isn't that great? The Bible tells you when you're lying. I love that that verse is there. A lot of people, I had a college roommate who said, me and God, we're good. I've got, me and my God, we got our own thing. I go, well, if you say you have fellowship with him while you walk in darkness, you lie and don't practice the truth. But, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Isn't that interesting that fellowship in the Bible is determined by truth and obedience and walking in the light according to what God says? You can't have a church without a Bible. Otherwise, we're just a group. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus, his son, there it is again, cleanses us from all what? Sin. Amen, hallelujah. Isn't it great that every sinner can be forgiven because of Jesus? Every sinner, no matter what your background, no matter what your story, no matter what your history, no matter what struggles you have right now, in the name of Jesus, you can be forgiven. Your sins can be washed and wiped clean. We should clap. Verse 9, if we say we have, I'm sorry, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There you are lying again. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say, did you see this? If we say, did you see the opinions that are in the context of the church who is walking according to the truth? It's revealing the things that we talk about. It's revealing the convictions we have. And not only that, the truth of God reveals, one, who God is, and two, who we are. Otherwise, we're confused. The Word of God reveals that all have sinned and fallen short of the, of the uh, glory of God. The Word of God reveals that all have, uh, the wages of sin are what? Death. That's why we take sin so seriously, is it leads to death, destruction, judgment. But with the word of God, when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sins, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Without the truth, you can't define your situation correctly. Without the truth, you can't define God correctly. Without the truth, you can't find just forgiveness in the name of Jesus. That's why Jesus takes the truth so seriously. That's why he's so particular and intolerant of false teaching. So what's the application? Hold fast until I come.